It's always wonderful to be able to sing these hymns together and, and uh, just be reminded of the goodness of God and who He is, and uh, so grateful for that. We'll take your Bibles and go to Proverbs 3 tonight, Proverbs chapter number 3, uh, verses 25 through 35, and uh, very simply tonight, uh, just simply entitled the message, The Wise Life, The Wise Life. Uh, you have your hand out there. You uh, already have really the seven principles we're going to cover tonight, and uh, they are a series of seven do nots. Uh, oftentimes, we associate uh, the phrase do not as something bad or something negative. And in this example, this is where a do not uh, in Scripture is actually a very positive thing. It is uh, those things that we should not do if we want to live a wise life. Well, let's just look at verse 35 as we begin. The last verse of chapter 3, it simply says this, The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the promotion of fools. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the promotion of fools. Two ways contrasted. One way results in glory. The other way results in shame. The wise life results in glory. The foolish life results in shame. I love the fact that the Bible is very clear when it comes to principles. Oftentimes we think about is the Bible, what does the Bible say about certain things? What does the Bible say about certain activities? Or what does the Bible say? The Bible really is very clear about its commandments, its precepts, its principles. But oftentimes we don't desire to see them for what they really are. Uh, I think sometimes we overcomplicate the Christian life. We make the Christian life harder than it really is by overthinking what does the Bible say. Verse 35 is one of those verses. Now, if we were just to look at that verse and not consider what we've already talked about in Proverbs, we might say, what does it mean to be wise? What does it mean to be a fool? But we know three chapters in, we've been covering these subjects. We've, we've covered uh, what uh, uh, wisdom is. So Solomon, as he writes here, is already making uh, the assumption that we know what wisdom is. And by this point in the book of Proverbs, you should have a pretty good idea of what wisdom is and what foolishness is. You should know what the, the right way is and what the wrong way is. So what begins to happen now, as he's been telling us, here's the things you should do, now Solomon introduces the concept, here's the things you should not do. And there are seven of these do-nots that characterize what we'll call the wise life. So this exhortation that Solomon's been giving us, now it kind of changes to a series of what some refer to as maxims or principles or uh, things to live by, and uh, very, very practical in what he says. So let's consider this, and there, these seven things, uh, you see what they are. You see the first one is do not be afraid. Number two, you see do not deny good. Number three, do not delay good. Number four, do not devise evil. Number five, do not strive without cause. Number six, do not envy oppressors. And then number seven, do not forget the end of the wicked. Now, these in themselves are very, very pointed. And you'll notice that he says these things, so not so that we would uh, have to search and to seek out what does he mean, but that they're very direct 
commands or very direct do not do's, right? So look at verses 25 and 26, and let's consider this first one. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of what? Here's what he says. Be not afraid of sudden fear, neither of the desolation of the wicked when it cometh. For the Lord shall be thy confidence and shall keep thy foot from being taken. What does he mean by be not afraid of sudden fear? Well, in the context, he's literally telling us, do not be afraid of terror or trouble that comes from wicked people in a sudden manner. In other words, don't be afraid of something that comes from the wicked, that comes on you quickly, that comes in a way that you were not prepared for. Why? Because he says in verse 26, the Lord is our confidence. The Lord shall be thy confidence, he says, and shall keep thy foot from being taken. So the Lord is our confidence. Now, he's not saying that there will not be fearful times. And he's not saying that there will not be time when the wicked come upon us. But what he is saying is that when they come upon you, don't be afraid because God is your confidence. Now, we'll get to this a number of probably months from now. In the 14th proverb, or Proverbs 14, in verse 26, here's what it says. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge. Now, remember what the fear of the Lord is. The, the fear of the Lord is that expression that we've learned already in the book of Proverbs that is a picture of true godliness. The fear of the Lord is a way of expressing real faith, real hope, real love. Everything that we are, we are to fear God. God is the reason we can have confidence. Our fear is uh, not to be afraid of God per se, but the kind of fear that the fear of the Lord is referring to, it's not something that appeals to our senses, but instead it is something that gives us a comfort. In other words, when I fear the Lord the way I should, then I will not fear what man can do. In other words, when fearful things come, when the wicked come upon me, I have my confidence in God. When the wicked plot against us, when the wicked plot against you, the Lord will be our confidence. The Lord is the one that will, we will find our place of refuge. And look what he says. He says, he will keep thy foot from being taken. To be taken literally is a, it's a phrase referring to being caught in a snare or caught in a trap. Uh, what are some traps that are in the world? Uh, Satan himself places traps for the believer every day. Uh, there are traps that you and I, if we're not walking in a wisdom and walking in a wise life, there are snares of the devil. And there is the, the trap of our own flesh. Uh, the, the desire of our flesh becomes our motivation. In other words, the wise life is not going to be led by our own flesh. It's going to be led by our fear of the Lord. It's going to be led by the reality that God is our, uh, our hope and our refuge. Don't be afraid of your oppressors. Be not afraid as a, I didn't count them, but I know that phrase, do not fear or fear not or be not afraid, is a recurring principle throughout the scripture. The only time we're told to fear is to fear God. 
We are to fear him, but we're not to fear the wicked. We're not to fear the oppressor and what they can do to us because of God's promises to his own. Over in the book of Psalms 91, look at Psalm 91. Psalm 91, these are great verses to mark and have really at your fingertips because these these are verses that will just remind us when fearful times come. Psalm 91, verse 5. Uh, this is in a psalm that uh, under the, over the heading or the, the thought in verses 1 through uh, 10, referring to the, uh, the, the place of refuge. And in verse 5, it says, Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day. Again, thou shalt not be afraid. Again, why should we not be afraid? Because there's nothing fearful. There's nothing to be afraid of. No, there's plenty of things to be fearful of. There's plenty of things to be afraid of, but we're not to be afraid. Why? Because our confidence is in God. Over in Psalm 112, verse number seven, Psalm 112, verse seven, the Bible again tells us another one of these do nots or shall not. Psalm 112, he shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. Psalm 112 describes the man who fears God. In other words, a man or woman who fears God is not afraid of evil things because his heart is fixed. Fixed on what? God. Trusting in the Lord. So we understand that we are told to not be afraid, not because there are not fearful things, but because we have a confidence. We have God as our source of hope. Now, there is a time when the Lord himself, I want to point us to, when Christ himself, in Matthew chapter number 8, I'm just give you an illustration here. Matthew chapter 8 said something about what fear is. He described what the definition of fear. I love Bible definitions. I think they're the best definitions we get. Matthew 8, 26. And you will see that this, uh, this comes in the context of Jesus and the disciples. And the winds are blowing. The sea is raging. And in the midst of the, this, uh, this storm, Jesus uses this exact terminology. The disciples, we realize, come and they wake him and they say, Lord, save us. We are perishing or we perish. We're going to die. And Jesus doesn't jump up and say, okay. He admonishes them and he says this in verse 26. And he saith unto them, why are ye fearful? O ye of little faith. So what fear really is, is a lack or a, it's, a, it's a characteristic of weak faith. When I'm afraid, it indicates my faith is weak. He says it himself. Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? In other words, he says this. The reason that you're afraid is because your faith is little. That's the point. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So we see that the Lord did take away that storm, but not before he admonished them saying, listen, if you're fearful, it indicates that you have a weak faith. So what do we do? This is a strong prohibition that Solomon says. Don't be afraid. Why? Because you have a confidence that is in God. 
That's the first of the seven do nots. The second one, do not deny good. Let's go back to Proverbs 3, verse 27. And notice, again, a very practical, again, this is uh, towards really other people. This is now how do we respond to others? He says in verse 27, withhold not good from them to whom it is due. When it is in the power of thine hand to do it. As Christians, we should never deny an opportunity to do good unto someone else. Now, opportunities to do good are opportunities that often, like he says here, he says, don't withhold good from them to whom it is due when it's in the power of thine hand to do it. In other words, when you have the ability to do good, do not deny someone of what they need to be given. As a matter of fact, he almost treats it as if we're indebted to that person who's in need. In other words, when we look at this, we, are, we owe people what we can as far as doing good. Now, you remember from our study on Sunday mornings in Romans 13, when we were in that particular chapter, we covered a principle in Romans 13, 8 that said this, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. In other words, we are to continue by our loving another is to give to them. If it's in the power of your hand to do it, we owe everyone love and we should never deny someone we can help. Over in 1 John 3, verse 17, again, this principle shows up there as well. So you see that Solomon's not just giving, these are not new things. The, the Bible confirms that these principles... 1 John 3, verse 17. The Bible says this, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? In other words, if a man claims to know God, he has the world's good, that, that's merchandise, that is the ability, that's opportunity, and he sees a brother in need and shuts up his compassion. In other words, his compassion is not even stirred. He says, how can the love of God even dwell in that man? So to know to do good and to not do it is sin, right? That's another biblical principle. So what Solomon's telling us here in Proverbs is saying, listen, we should never deny doing good to those we can help. It's actually the references in James 4.17 about to know to do good but not to do it, and it's sin. And that does include doing good unto those uh, that are in need. Here's what James 4.17 says, and if you want to mark that down. It says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not... To him, it is sin. Who is the to him? The person who knows he's supposed to do good but doesn't do it, it is sin. Now, again, that's not a sin we often hear preached. Uh, we don't hear people preaching about, hey, you failed to help a brother in need when you could have helped him. We hear about the, the big sins, but what about the refusal to do good when it's in our power to do good? And then, of course, Paul in the book of Galatians, lots of verses tonight, Galatians 6, verse 10, uh, gives again this principle, and this, this comes in the, in the context of bearing one another's, one another's burdens. He says this in Galatians 6, 10. 
as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Now notice Paul writes about doing good to all men, which means even people outside the body of Christ, but he says especially to those who are in the household of faith. That means we are to do good to other brothers and sisters in Christ. How do we apply that in our day-to-day life, even in our church life? Uh, There might be a need that you can meet in the life of somebody else in this church, and you have it within your power to do it. I have it within my power to do it. You ought to meet the need. Now, again, these are principles that are for the wise life. Do not deny doing good. Don't withhold good from somebody. Now, it's interesting that he says to whom it is due. Back in Proverbs, notice notice the terminology there. The way he writes this and the way he says this, withhold not good from them to whom it is due. In other words, it's a responsibility. We owe it to them. It's not just something that we ought to consider. He says this is something that it's It is required if it's in the power of thine hand to do it. So literally, if it's in your power, you are the owner of that which can help a person in need, then they have a claim of ownership upon what we can give them. That's the law of love, which is established by the law of God. That's what the principle is. The goods that we have, by the way, this is a hard principle. Whatever you and I have, is not ours. It belongs to God. It belongs to him. Now, God blesses materially people in all different ways. We are to do within our power. God has never told us to go beyond our power, but he has told us that we should take opportunity. Don't pass up the opportunity to do good to somebody, the poor even. You know why? Because even the poor, those poor brothers and sisters in Christ, we're indebted to them. Again, I think this is hard for us to fully understand in our country in many ways because we don't live in the levels often of poverty that we see in a lot of other parts of the world. Uh, We we struggle with the realities of of what this actually means. Uh, You and I, every single person in this room, We are extremely wealthy compared to many other people in the world. No matter what your background is tonight, and really no matter who would hear this message, you are are rich beyond measure materially. And yet, God says, do not deny doing good. Now, what's interesting, number three, in the same vein or the same thought, do not delay good. Now, there's a principle here, and this, was, this, one, this one I kind of sat on for a little bit because I thought, wow, this is interesting. He, 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 he says, don't deny doing good, and you think you've got it covered, but then he says this, say not unto thy neighbor, go and come again, and tomorrow I will give when thou has it by thee. Man, this is so plain. He says, don't tell that poor neighbor or that needy neighbor, go and come back tomorrow. It's procrastination. It's delaying doing good, which you know right then you could take care of. It's in your power today. Too often, and this is what I was thinking, too often times when we delay doing good, 
It's a simple cover for our own selfishness. In other words, what we're doing is we know what we're supposed to do. We know we really should give, but we hope if we can just push them off and say, listen, I can't do it today, but I'll do it tomorrow. Really what's happening is we're kind of wrapping our arms around tighter and tighter and tighter around our stuff and saying, listen, come back tomorrow. What usually happens is tomorrow never comes. That neighbor walks away in need And our hope is, this is how our nature works. And again, I'm just being brutally honest with myself and being brutally honest with you. Our nature is often one so selfish that what we're hoping will happen by us delaying them is they'll forget about it and we won't have to fulfill it. That's often what we're thinking. Come back tomorrow and after they leave, we say, I hope they forget about the matter. But to the Lord, that's an abomination. That is to to, to think about, listen, here's an opportunity to do good to those that we owe, and yet we procrastinate. What's interesting is is the principle based upon Proverbs 27.1. Again, this is just a, this is one of those large principles. Proverbs 27.1 says this, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Very simple. The reality is you may not have tomorrow to fulfill and complete that good that you should have done today. We all are making an assumption tonight that you have tomorrow, right? I mean, you probably didn't stop and think at any time today, I wonder if I actually have tomorrow. Because we're so used to living as if everything is going to remain and everything's going to work and tomorrow will be exactly like today was, but we don't know that. You find out throughout Scripture that procrastination is never rewarded. It's always uh, frowned upon scripturally. You You don't see God saying, listen, put this off, put this off, put this off. No, what you actually see is you actually see, listen, do it now, do it today. So we could have said, do not delay good, or we could put it in our own terms that we understand very clearly, do not procrastinate. Uh, Don't put off doing good what you could do today. Oftentimes, what we put off in our giving, by tomorrow, that impulse is gone. In other words, when you believe, I need to give and I need to do, if you put that off, often that impulse will go. Number four, do not devise evil, or we might say, do not plan evil. Now, again, this should go without saying, but verse 29 says, devise not evil against thy neighbor, seeing he dwelleth securely by thee. Now, you shouldn't have to tell believers, uh, don't plan to do evil against your neighbor. Now, again, scripturally, who is our neighbor? It's not the person who shares an address with you or lives on your street or lives in your town. It's every human being. It's, It's people that we know. And he says, don't devise evil or don't plan evil against them. Listen, as, as a neighbor, scripturally, our neighbor, whether they're a believer or not, ought to expect us to be friendly and caring and to be concerned. It is really tough when you have your own life and your own things to worry about to be concerned about the welfare and the needs of your neighbor. We live in a neighborhood. Some of you don't live in a a traditional neighborhood. We live in a traditional neighborhood. There's houses on all sides of us. I can tell you very few times during a week do I look around and say, I wonder if my neighbor needs something. 
Because what happens is we become very self-centered about what we need and what we have to take care of and what's broken at our house and what needs to be fixed. And yet there are people on all sides of us who they expect, they should expect us to be friendly. They should expect us to do right. In Proverbs chapter number six, verses 16 through 18, uh, the, the Bible talks about having a heart that plans to do evil or devises evil, and he calls it an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 6, verse 16 and through 19 is in a series of the seven abominations the Lord hates. These are things that God hates. Verse 16 says this, These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. Those are the things God hates. They're specific. And so we need to think about, you know, Solomon, as he, as he writes the, these, these proverbs, uh, he's, he's warning us against malice towards our neighbor. We ought to live peaceably with all people, including our brethren at church and our, 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 our neighbors, whoever they might be, we ought to think well of them. You know, oftentimes I think we're guilty of this. We see a neighbor or we see someone who is uh, maybe taken by a fault, they're overtaken, and we don't think good thoughts the way we ought to think towards them. We start thinking maybe negative and say, boy, look, look, how, look how horrendous they're acting. Or look, what, why, how are they living that way? Instead of stopping and thinking, wait a minute, what could I do to possibly help them? Now, this is going to come as a total shock to you. I am a 100% introvert. I am as introvert as they could. I am. I, I am, I am, I am at the, my best peace by myself. Now, my family, we're very close, but it is tough for me to look out and see somebody and say, listen, I'm just going to go over and be neighborly. I literally have to talk myself into it just to walk over to my neighbor in my own neighborhood and say hello to them. My family will vouch for this. Completely introverted. It's tough to do good. It's tough to think, but I don't think that I think bad things against them. But what are we doing if we, if we don't reach out and be the neighbors that we ought to be? Think well of them. Think well of them even if they don't line up with us. Don't think malice against them. Don't hope something bad happens. And, and by the way, I could tell you some stories. We've had some, we've had some scary neighbors. <laughs> we've had some scary, scary neighbors. We had neighbors in New Hampshire that scared us. I, we, try, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know how to reach them. We tried to be nice. And it would be easy for us to start thinking, you know, I wish they would just move away or I wish this, I wish that. This is a real principle. It's not easy 
Because this the evil thoughts is not like, listen, I'm planning on burning their house down. But it's maybe like, you know, if you just get out of my life, my life would go a whole lot smoother. So think about it from, the, from a perspective of a believer. Our neighbors, I wrote this down, our neighbors ought to be able to trust us and not be suspicious of us. Now think about that. That's, that, that's a message in of itself. You know, I'm not, not trying to guilt us into anything, but I mean, can your neighbor even trust you? It's a thought. So do not devise evil. He goes one step further. Number five, do not strive without cause. Now, again, a lot of people focus on what it says and then what it doesn't say. Strive not with a man without cause. Okay, I have a cause. (laughs) The principle here is really strife should be avoided at all costs. But he specifically says you should not be striving with a person, especially when you have no cause to strive with them. Now, the Proverbs give principles about strife if it's left what we'll refer to as unchecked. In other words, strife that we don't have under control. Strife will escalate. It'll increase. It'll become uh, more frequent. Over in Proverbs 17, 14, the Bible says the beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water. Therefore, leave off contention before it be meddled with. In other words, when strife starts, it's just like when you open the faucet. But the longer that faucet's open, the more trouble it causes. Right? Very simple. Over in Proverbs 18, verse 6, A fool's lips enter into contention, and his mouth calleth for strokes. And we also know the power of strife can easily and oftentimes can ruin another person's reputation. Proverbs 25, verses 8 through 10. Go not forth hastily to strive, lest thou know not what to do in the end thereof, when thy neighbor hath put thee to shame. Debate thy cause with thy neighbor himself, and discover not a secret to another, lest he that heareth it put thee to shame, and thine infamy turn not away. Principle, do not strive without cause. If a man's done you no harm, then you should, re, you should be not striving against him. But what Solomon is really forbidding here is we should, we should avoid all strife and dispute. Now, even if a man has done us harm, we have a biblical way of handling things. Okay, and again, these things don't get talked about in our churches a lot. But let's say tonight you have an issue with another person in our church, for example. Matthew 18, 15, and 16 show us what we should do, all right? So striving is different than what this is. Matthew 18, verse 15 says this. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, so you have a cause, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Now, this step gets ignored in almost every conflict between people. Because here's what happens when we have a problem with somebody else, we very few times go right to the person we have the problem with. We go to a mediator, and it's not Jesus. We go to another person and we tell them, I have a problem with so-and-so. 
You have already created, you've already created a problem right there. Because here's what it says. Go to them alone and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Now, again, it goes on and talks about what do we do if he won't hear you? You take two or, th- you take two or more, one or more witnesses, two or more in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If he continues to neglect you, neglect him, neglect you rather, you tell it unto the church. Here's one thing I've always told people, and I would say it even in a church setting, there is no time limit given on that. In other words, this doesn't necessarily have to be, okay, Monday, I went and talked to them, they wouldn't listen to me. So Tuesday, I took two other people, and Wednesday, they wouldn't listen, so I told it to the church. It's not supposed to be sequential like that. It's supposed to be, listen, my goal should be restoration. My goal should be reconciliation. So I may have to go to another person 10, 15 times maybe. It may take that long before I say, listen, I'm going to bring some other people with me. Oftentimes we give people one shot or no shot at all. We just tell it to the whole church. We say, we got a problem with so-and-so. Now listen, how does this go all the way back to this? Because this is what strife causes. Even if we have been harmed by someone else, there is a way to do it. So even if we have a cause, that doesn't mean we have a license to strive with them. No, we should follow the biblical principle of going to them. Over in Luke 17, 3, it says this, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. And that's hard to even do in our houses, right? I mean, we point out a problem. The person says, you're right. I'm sorry. And we say things like, are you sure? You're, are you really sorry? Listen, if they said, I'm sorry, forgive me, we're supposed to forgive them right then. These are, these are principles that as believers, we, sh- we already know these things. And again, as I started off this message tonight, sometimes it's not a matter we don't know it. It's a matter we know it, but we don't follow it. Back to our text, Romans 3, verse 30, or Proverbs 3, verse 31. Envy thou not the oppressor, and choose none of his ways. For the froward is abomination to the Lord, but his secret is with the righteous. So number six, do not envy oppressors. Why would we envy oppressors? Why would we envy those that are seeking to do violence against us or choose their ways? Because what happens in life and what happens even today is sometimes we see the wicked and we see them prospering and we think, uh, why do they seem to have everything going right? And we as believers, we're trying to live right, we're trying to do right, and we seem to be, everything seems to be failing. God has words for that. He has principles for that. Proverbs 22, verses 22 and 23 tell us this. Rob not the poor because he is poor, neither oppress the afflicted in the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and spoil the soul of those that spoiled them. Make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. In other words, when we envy our oppressors or we see the way that they seem to be, they seem to have it all, they seem to have prosperity, sometimes those who are oppressors are the ones who seem to be in full prosperity. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves saying, listen, I want what they have. Yet what Solomon says here, he says, listen, don't envy your oppressor and don't choose any of their ways. 
If you see the wicked prospering, don't choose that way. Because it's all a facade. It's all a mirage. It is going to go away. And that's the promise that's given here. Here's what we see happen. We see in, verses, in verse 32, the Bible tells us, For the forward is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret is with the righteous. In other words, the Lord blesses the upright and the just. He blesses the humble. He blesses the wise. His, his favor is with righteous people, not with the oppressor. The curse of the Lord, verse 33, is in the house of the wicked, but he blesseth the habitation of the just. So the curse of the Lord is upon those who oppress, those who do wickedness, but he blesses where the just live. The house of the wicked, even though they appear to be in prosperity, has a curse on it. Now think about that for a moment. We see prosperity. We see people who seem to be uh, doing everything they can to get away from God, yet they seem to have all the riches. They seem to have all the influence. They seem to have all the power. Yet God says, here's what I want you to remember. My favor and my, the blessing rest upon the just, and that prosperous house is under a curse. Over in Psalm 37, verse 35 and 36, the Bible speaks specifically of this, and it's in the context of wait on the Lord. Verse thir- actually, verse 34, Psalm 37, wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spread himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the perfect man and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Then I want to draw your attention to one more place regarding this. Over in Psalm 73. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I have been doing this extended personal study for myself, and it, it may someday end up in a series of messages. But in Psalm 73, it's a psalm of, a psalm of Asaph. The, the psalm is the first third of it is with regard to the wicked and their prosperity. And the, the, the writer is struggling with seeing how the wicked seem to be getting away with everything. They seem to have it all, and yet the righteous people seem to be failing on every side. And he says in, in verse 3, he says, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. Listen how, now this is, this is coming from a believer's perspective. He's saying, I was envying the foolish. There were no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. In other words, there was no consequences for their action. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compass them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than a heart could wish. In other words, they are overflowing with stuff, we could put it that way. 
They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. He goes down and and keeps reading and reading. And he says in verse 16, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou casteth them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. Now, again, we're not... expositing this all that should be, but here's the synopsis. He said, it wasn't until I went into the sanctuary of God, I understood my my mistake of how I was viewing the prosperous. When I went into the sanctuary of God, when I came to God, I realized they don't have anything. They are under God's curse. They They are an abomination and the God will take care of those situations. Again, he's not saying, I wish these things upon him. He's telling them and he's saying, listen, these, this is what I saw. When I began to feel sorry for myself and said, why don't I have what the wicked have? I went to the sanctuary of God and I remembered something. I remembered I shouldn't envy my oppressors because God has put them in slippery places. Their prosperity is temporary. And the final one is, do not forget the end of the wicked. And this kind of runs together with what I just mentioned there. Verse 34, back in Proverbs 3, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the promotion of fools. The end of the wicked will be an everlasting shame. The end of the child of God will be endless honor. Fools glory in what they have now, but the thing that the fool glories in today is their shame. In other words, the wise will inherit something. The wise will inherit glory, but the shame in which the wicked are now glorying in, it will be to their shame. When they exalt themselves now, that will end up at one day will be their shame. When the prosperous wicked seem to be exalted, it, will, it is only for the purpose of putting them to shame. In other words, that which they boast in will become the very thing that they'll be put to shame with. We see that the wise, the just, the righteous will inherit glory, but the shame shall be the promotion of fools. All the good things that we envy about the prosperous will be reversed. When the glory of the promotion of the foolish things of the world, God will put those down and he will scorn them. God himself will scorn the scornful, he says in verse 34, but he'll give grace unto the lowly. Listen, this is difficult to live in our lives today because we, we do this, I, th- I think, even subconsciously. I think we get this idea and we, we, we sometimes as believers, we say, listen, I'm doing all the right things. I've got my family in church. I'm faithful to the word. I give and I do this and I do this. Why are things just not going as well as it is for that person who seems to have it all? The Bible speaks directly to it. 
It says God's going to give grace unto the lowly, those who are not promoting these things, and the fool is going to be brought low. Listen, we know scripturally that Christ is the ultimate or Christ is the treasure of all wisdom. Remember, the wisdom of God, it's, it's a picture of who Christ is. We're not told to try to change the position or change the, the standing of a person in society. We're given these seven principles as ways that we ought to live because this is the way believers live. They live this wise life. Living a wise life is observing the principles of God. It's copying the example. Over in the book of Colossians, I didn't give this to you as a reference, but I will want to leave you with this because uh, this is where we, we can find our, our, our everlasting hope is in Colossians chapter 2. Or, yeah, Colossians 2 verses 1 through 3. And it talks about Christ being this, this the treasure Colossians 2, verse 1, Paul writes these words, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom, that's Christ, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Folks, everything we need and everything we are is in Christ. When we envy the prosperous, we're declaring Christ is not enough. When we do these things by denying good when we ought to do good, when we're afraid, when, when we're devising evil, when we're striving without cause, uh, we're not demonstrating that Christ is enough. I've been personally challenged in my own life. I've said that for years. I've said Christ is enough, but yet I find myself often uh, maybe not following the example that I ought to be. Is Christ really enough? If Christ is enough, then we can follow these principles. We can say, listen, I'm going to set out to live this wise life. Why? Because this is what my Savior wants me to do. This is what God wants me to do. God wants me to live a life that demonstrates Him. And so we see these, these seven do-nots. I know it's becoming very popular to say, listen, we don't, we don't emphasize the do-nots. We only emphasize what we are, what we can do in Christ. Some of the most helpful things you're going to find in Scripture are when God says, do not do. This is seven of them right here. Folks, these are, these are life-altering. Even if we just worked on one of these, even this week, saying, listen, I, I may be stuck on do not be afraid. You may be the most fearful person here tonight. That may be where you need to be and say, listen, I'm not going to be afraid. Why? Because the Lord's my confidence. Whatever those are, maybe it's all of them. Maybe it's a few of them. But I hope this will help us to think about uh, allowing the wisdom of God to direct our lives and how we live our lives. Okay? All right, let's stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. I hope this is